Good morning, church. Now I know that you know that God is sovereign. I know you know that, that God governs and guides every moment of our lives, that God directs the affairs of human history, everything from the orbit of planets in their galaxies to the floating particles of dust that float in the sunlight, everything is is under the absolute undisputed dominion of the living God. I know you believe that. At least I hope you do. But you see, the catch is the sovereignty of God. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel how we think it should feel. And most of the time, it doesn't feel like anything at all. Why? Because the sovereignty of God, it's not a substance. It's not a feeling. It has no smell or shape. It is silent and hidden and invisible. It is behind the scenes and oftentimes imperceptible to the human eye. And yet, that's just the thing. Just because you cannot see it doesn't mean it isn't there. Rather, God is in every moment of our lives, silently superintending every single detail, bringing every situation to the exact outcome that he himself predetermined. You see, no matter what it looks like or feels like or seems like in the moment for his glory and for your joy, God is at work in your lives. That is the sovereignty of God. And what would be really great What would be so helpful to our souls is if we had a new pair of theological eyeballs capable of helping us see the world the way it really is, namely as the uninterrupted domain of God's activity. In other words, what we really need in our lives is a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter what it seems like or no matter what it feels like or no matter what it looks like, that you know that no matter where you are standing, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there and he governs everything that comes to pass. And you see that silent sovereignty of God imperceptible to the human eye is exactly what we see in our text this morning because where we are is the book of Daniel. And what I love about Daniel is that it's so much more than a fiery furnace and a lion's den. Rather, instead, the the book of Daniel is a manifesto. It is a proclamation. It is a 12-chapter public service announcement that the universe and everything in it belongs to God, that every single particle in the universe does exactly what God commands. Why? Because the God of Daniel is a sovereign God. And this morning, we begin our series where we should begin, namely in the beginning in chapter one. And the thing that I love about chapter one is that what it does is it gives us theological lenses through which to view the world. It helps us see that behind the scenes, imperceptible to the human eye, God is there leading and loving and ruling and reigning and that he is the active force behind everything in our lives. And I'll just tell you, we need this. 
We really, really need this because we are born, I'll just have you know, with atheistic eyes. We wake up every single morning with atheistic eyes that we forget that in God's universe, there's no such thing as accidents. There's no such thing as coincidences. There's no, there's no such thing as random. There is no luck or chance in the universe. Rather, all there is is God, and he governs everything that comes to pass, which is exactly why the book of Daniel is in your Bibles, to remind you that God is in charge. God has a plan. God will win. And I don't know all of the particular issues that weigh upon your soul this morning. But one thing I do know is that we all woke up this morning in particular need of a theological tune-up. We all woke up this morning with the bolts of our thoughts about God needing a little tightening this morning because we have to understand that the joy and stability we want in our lives does not come from our circumstances. Rather, joy and stability that we want so so bad only comes from what you perceive God to be like. And what God is like is supreme and sovereign and, and powerful and governing every moment of our lives. That is reality. So let's go to the text and let's see this unfold. If you have notes, you can tell this is where we're going this morning. I want you to see four realities. Four realities about the sovereignty of God that produce joy and stability as we wait for the Messiah to establish his kingdom. That's where we're going. Four realities about the sovereignty of God that produce joy and stability as we wait for the Messiah to return and establish his kingdom. And yet, with more suspense than a Hitchcock film, let's watch the drama unfold. Let's begin first with the tragic scene. The tragic scene in verses 1 and 2. And you all, most of you anyway, remember 9-11, don't you? The images of 747s being flown by terrorists into buildings, killing thousands, is just seared into the memories of our souls. This is part of our cultural memory as a people, and it is forever embedded in in who we are in our identity. And on September 12th, the morning after the attacks, these were the kinds of headlines that appeared in papers across the United States. For instance, act of war, terrorist strike, death toll horrendous. Another one, the day that shook America. Another one, none of us will ever forget. Another one, America's darkest day. Another one, a day of infamy. And one major newspaper simply had a picture of the carnage. And one word appeared over the top, outrage. And we feel that, don't we, deeply and permanently. And that same outrage and that same um, sick feeling we get in our guts is exactly what Israel felt when they read the headline of Daniel 1, verse 1. Look at the text. In the third year of the kingdom of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged against it. There's the headline. It's a bit long for a headline, but it works, doesn't it? Act of war, Babylon strikes, death toll horrendous. The day that shook Jerusalem, 
Israel's darkest day, a day of infamy, outrage. And you have to understand, this verse right here is as tragic for Israel as it possibly could be. You know why? Because out of all the punishments that God threatened to his people, against his people for for their sin, this one was the worst. You know why? Because in that day when an enemy nation invaded your land and took you captive, in most cases it was over for you as a nation. You did not come back from exile. You disappeared from exile. And what that meant was all of God's promises of a future kingdom from Jerusalem were now hanging in the balance. It looked over for them. And you notice in verse one, it's, it says that in the third year of, Jeho- of the kingdom of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came in and crashed the party. Now, now here's the thing. Jehoiakim was not a great king by any stretch of the imagination, but we can't help but feel a little sorry for the guy, right? I mean, he barely gets his stuff unpacked in the royal palace. And in the third year of his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar shows up, knocks on the gates and there's a new sheriff of town, and it is Nebuchadnezzar. And the text says that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, came to Jerusalem and besieged against it. That statement right there would have sent chills down the back of anyone living in that day. You see, in those days, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they were a killing machine crushing former world powers like Egypt and Assyria, like insects on the pavement. I mean, they tore through the ancient Near East like a lion, drenching it with blood. And you notice in verse one, it says that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he besieged against it. Do you know what that means? It means they completely surrounded Jerusalem, barricading it, no way in, no way out. You either starved to death from the inside or you surrendered with your tail between your legs. And either way, Babylon wins and they did win. And so if you open up the papers in 605 BC, the morning after the attack, what would you think? What would you, what would you just assume? You would assume Yahweh cannot protect his people. You would assume Yahweh is a joke. Marduk, the God of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar, his king, these are the heavyweight champions of the Middle East, not Yahweh. That is what you would think. And yet, and yet there is more here than meets the eye, isn't there? Because to be sure, when Babylon stormed the gates and they invaded the city and they took over the show, it would certainly appear like God was weak and incompetent. And yet, verse 2 is a little CAT scan that shows us what's really going on behind the scenes. Look at the text. It says, and the Lord, listen very carefully, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And he also, God also gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of of his God. Did you see it? The theological bait and switch in the text here. Nebuchadnezzar showed up, conquered the city to be sure, but what is verse 2's explanation for how that was even possible? What does the text say? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. There it is, the silent, 
but sovereign sovereign power of God over everything, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. And by extension, the whole stinking country into Nebuchadnezzar's clutches. God did that. God did that. The text does not say that God merely allowed this to happen. The text does not say that God merely permitted this to happen. No, the Lord says that the text says that the Lord actively gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Meaning what? Meaning God is driving the train here, not Babylon. God is the one in charge, not Babylon. God is sovereign, not Babylon. Now, I'm not saying Judah didn't have it coming, because they did. And I'm not saying that God didn't warn them, because he did. I'm just saying that Daniel wants you to know at the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't launch one arrow over the wall of Jerusalem without God's command. And here's the thing you have to understand. That word gave in verse 2, that is the most important word in the entirety of the chapter. You know why? Because three times Daniel uses that word to describe the silent sovereignty of God active as the active force behind every single event in human history, in life. Because the reality is, just because you cannot see his power does not mean it isn't there. And notice what's really interesting. Notice the details down to which the sovereignty of God extends. Look at verse two. It says that the Lord gave, because here's the question, what else did God give into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? It's very interesting. The Lord gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God. Think about it. The gift of God, as it were, to Nebuchadnezzar were some of the very vessels used in the temple for worship. I mean, sure, the soldiers stormed the gates, kicked open the door, walked into the temple, put their grubby little hands on the vessels, brought them back into Babylon, and stashed them in a worship sanctuary of a false god. But what they did not know, what nobody knew in that day, was that God was giving them a gift. I may be thinking, Daniel, why are you telling us this? Well, two reasons. One, these very same vessels, guess what? These are going to come up again later on in chapter 5 when at a drunken frat party, they, they are using these vessels to in worship to false gods and God is going to powerfully intervene. But the second reason why Daniel tells us this is because this not only displays God's sovereignty, but the kind of sovereignty that he possesses. I think there's the implication here that, that the sovereignty of God extends down to the pixels and to the details of our lives, to the granular level of our lives. There is no detail that is not under the sovereign authority of God. So what that means is in the details and pixels and granular level of your lives, God is there at work and doing something profound. Which brings us next to the tense scenario. The tense scenario, verses three through seven. So fast forward, days, weeks, months, I don't know. 
But Daniel transports us 700 miles east of Jerusalem into Babylon, into the royal palace to eavesdrop on a conversation between the king and your versions might say eunuch, but officials is a better word. One of his officials, look at verses three and four. And the king said to Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring from the sons of Israel and from the offspring of the kingdom and from the nobles, youths or young men, in whom there is no defect, who are handsome of appearance and who have insight in all wisdom and who know knowledge and who understand learning and who are competent to stand in the palace of the king and to teach them the writing and the language of the Chaldeans. And do, now, do you see what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here? This is actually pretty brilliant. Uh, I mean, despite being brutal and bloodthirsty and, and psychotic, this man was a genius. I mean, he did not rule the Middle East because he got C's in college. Okay, so th this guy knew how to build an empire. You see, rather than just make his captives rot in a dungeon somewhere, what he does, he orders his chief of staff to conduct a little placement test to go throughout the Jewish hostages, find the best and the brightest, the most well-bred, the good-looking, well-spoken, in shape, academically superior men in the kingdom that they had kidnapped from Israel and then forcefully enroll them in the Royal Academy of Babylon. In other words, they gotta look like male models and they gotta be super smart. And notice at the end of verse four, look what else the king commands. He says that they were to teach them the writing and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans was another word for Babylonian people. In other words, they were to be taught how to write and to speak the languages of Babylon, all of which were just mixed and, and mingled with idolatry, by the way. And they'd be taught all the religious texts, the myths of Babylon, the creation accounts, Astronomy, astrology, religion, mathematics, medicine, you name it, they were taught it. In other words, think about what this is. What this is, is total indoctrination. In other words, the plan is to brainwash these Jewish teenagers for three straight years, immersed in the Babylonian independent school district. I mean, you can imagine Jewish moms getting a little nervous about this. And yet, what's the point of all this? What, what was the goal? What was the end game of this training? Look at the end of verse five. It says they were to be educated for three years at the end of which literally it says they were to stand before the king, meaning what? It means at the end of this program, the goal was to enlist them to serve in the highest levels of the Babylonian government. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. They were, they were to spend the rest of their lives serving and advancing the cause of the very nation that destroyed their country. And among these young recruits, Jewish recruits, verse six, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, at least that used to be their names. Because when you get taken captive by Babylon, you become Babylonian even down to your very names. Look at verse 7, the renaming. And the chief of the officials appointed names for them. And he appointed for Daniel Belteshazzar, and for Hananiah Shadrach, and for Mishael Meshach, and for Azariah Abednego. And what's really interesting is that even the names are pagan. Belteshazzar, formerly Daniel, literally means Nebo, 
protect his life. In other words, his name is a prayer to a Babylonian deity. Shadrach, Meshach, formerly Hananiah, and Mishael, they are renamed after the Sumerian moon god. And Azariah, which literally means Yahweh helps, his name is now Aved Nego, son of Nego, another Babylonian deity. This is not a great analogy, but it would be like being taken captive by Mormons and they renaming you Joseph Smith is my father. Or you being captured by Buddhists and being renamed Buddha is my protector or by Muslims and you being called the son of Allah. Do, do you see? This is total, ultimate culture shock. This is really serious. Your old identity gets obliterated and you get a new name, a new birth certificate, a new passport, a new language. You eat and speak and say and do what we tell you to do. Welcome to Babylon. So you have to appreciate what a tense scenario this is. This is extremely awkward, not to mention dangerous. You love Yahweh on the one hand, but now you're Babylonian property, immersed in pagan culture, subjected to total brainwashing and indoctrination. And, and yet, here's the thing, while these men lived in Babylon, they were not of Babylon. And what I mean is, it is possible, it is possible to live in the most godless, secular, pagan culture possible, rubbing shoulders with ungodly people, and yet come out of that completely unscathed. Just like these guys. And that's not only possible, that is necessary. Which is why I don't buy the fear-mongering that says that public schools or Democrats or social media or culture is going to ruin your kids. Biblically, that does not make any sense. Why? Because they're already ruined. We are all born polluted by sin at the deepest possible level, which means the greatest evil in the world is not outside of us, it is inside of us through the sin that lurks in our very souls. We are all born ruined sinners in need of a savior. And so choose whatever schooling you want to for your kids. Take your pick. Be my guest. I make no judgments. But do not buy, do not buy into the unbiblical notion that says that a certain, kinds of ki certain kind of education will protect your kids from Babylon because our kids were born with Babylon already in them. See, the point is the transforming grace of God through his word is able to protect and preserve and transform our lives even in the most pagan and godless of societies. You see, the answer is not to seclude ourselves. The answer is to immerse ourselves in the sacred text of Holy Scripture to plant the roots of our souls deep, deep, deep into the Bible-soaked soils of medit meditation on the Bible. That is the answer. I believe that's the way these boys were raised. I believe that's the men they, kind of, they became because the Word of God is always the answer. Which brings us next to the test succeeded. The test succeeded in verses 8 through 16, and here is where, as they say, the plot thickens. Again, think about this here. Daniel and his comrades are being subjected to total indoctrination and brainwashing. They are forcefully enrolled in the Royal Academy of Babylon. 
And as believers in Yahweh who have pretty strong convictions about what is and what is not, what is truth and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, inevitably their training is, they're going to have some collision with their training and there was collision. See, here we see that there is a line that Daniel will not cross. I mean, sure, sure, he'll, he'll read Babylonian books. He'll attend Babylonian schools. He will speak Babylonian languages. He will work in the Babylonian government. But one thing he will never, ever do is disobey the word of God. Notice verse 8. Notice what it says. And it says, one version says, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the, the term in Aramaic or Hebrew is, is fine cuisine. He would not defile himself with the fine cuisine of the king and with the, with the wine of his banquets and he sought from the chief of the officials that he should not defile himself. Now here's what's really interesting about this. When it says that Daniel made up his mind, the, the Hebrew word there is literally he set or placed upon his heart. Daniel placed upon his heart that he would not defile himself. And the reason why I tell you that is because that very same word to set or place is used three times in the last two verses. I'll translate it directly from the Hebrew. You listen for the contrast. Verse seven, it says, and the chief of the officials placed for them names. And he placed for Daniel the name Belteshazzar. Verse 8, but Daniel placed upon his heart that he would not defile himself. Do you see what he did? It's ingenious. See, it's kind of like in movies or TV shows when a bad guy pulls a gun on a cop and the cop snatches the gun out of his hand. He disarms the assailant and second, he disassembles the gun into a bunch of different pieces. I don't even know if that's possible, but it looks really cool on the screen. And you see, that is exactly what Daniel did here. Babylon put a gun to Daniel's head to make him conform, to make him become what they wanted him to become. But Daniel snatches the gun out of their hands and refuses to stand down. He will not conform. Why? Because the word of God had a python grip on his very soul. And you might be thinking, where do you see that in the text? Oh, it's there, all right. Lurking in the background of verse eight, because here's the thing. When it says that he would not defile himself with the food of the king, the background to that is none other than the Mosaic law. Genesis through Deuteronomy, probably particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, and, and maybe the issue is because there was sausage and pork and BLTs and other foods forbidden by the law of Moses. I'm, I'm sure that was the case. But you see, at the end of the day, probably what it really was is that the food from the table of the king, get this now, was inseparably intertwined with the worship of idols. Food from the gods to be enjoyed as worship of the gods. And obviously that is a line that Daniel is not going to cross. Why? Because Israel was to be a holy people. And the essence of true holiness, get this now, is not just right morals, it is right affections. In other words, Daniel would not budge on this because he loved God as the treasure of his soul. Don't you see, the issue here was the holiness of God. 
The issue here was the glory of God. The issue at the end of the day was what God said in his word, even down to the very food that he ate. This was the deal breaker of the universe. Bottom line, they would not sin against the living God. And so what what does Daniel do? Start a protest. Do a hunger strike, throw a hissy fit. No, none of the above. Instead, look at verse eight. And he sought from the chief of the officials that he should not defile himself. In other words, not very flashy, not very dramatic, not very exciting. All he did was ask permission. That's it. He just asked permission. And yet what this really is, is a well-placed opportunity for evangelism, wasn't it? I mean, at some level, he had to explain to this pagan official that he was a follower of Yahweh, that Yahweh was his king and that his allegiance was to the word of God and that he had to obey God rather than men, right? He had to explain at some level what was happening. Daniel had to explain to this pagan official that to eat this food would be to sin against God, that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was the issue. And you see, don't you, what Daniel was willing to risk here? The jeopardy that this request put his life in, that the price was enormous here. I mean, the, the, the issue is, is, is that he wouldn't, nearly, wouldn't merely be expelled from the Academy of Babylon, but he would risk offending Nebuchadnezzar and suffer a horrifying and painful death because of his insubordination. That's what's at stake. But again, God intervened. Quietly and silently and invisibly, to be sure, but he intervenes nevertheless. Look at verse 9. It says, And God gave Daniel mercy and compassion or favor and compassion before the chief of the officials. And there it is again. Gave. God gave. Do you see it? The most important word in the whole chapter. What is this? What this is, is the silent but sovereign intervention of the living God. And what is it exactly that God gave to Daniel? Look what he says. God gave favor and compassion, literally compassions, plural, to Daniel. I mean, think about it. In verse 2, God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And here he gives Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of this pagan official. What does this mean? It means exactly as it sounds. Think about this here. Daniel told this official that they would not eat this food and sin against their God. And could they please make other arrangements? And God intervenes. Literally, God stepped in in this moment to cause this man to respond to Daniel's request in a way that he never otherwise would have responded. I believe that's the implication of the text. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. I believe the implication is God prevented what would normally happen in this scenario and he brought about a different scenario that otherwise never would have happened had he not intervened. Because how did the man respond? How did he respond? He cared. 
He gave a rip. He, he, he had compassion. And instead of responding how he would normally respond, he had sympathy for Daniel instead. <laughs> Why? Because the text says, God gave it to him. Now think about it. This guy had been doing this job for years probably, right? Hundreds of recruits he watched come through the program. This was just a job, a paycheck. These guys were just a number, a name and a system, the tool for, a Babel, for the Babylonian empire. What did he care about the religious convictions? And yet he did care because God intervened and caused him to care. Don't you see? God was there in that moment, in that conversation, silently, invisibly, behind the scenes, bringing about the outcome that he himself had predetermined. God was there because he's always there. And in every moment of your lives, he's also there just as much as he was here. That's why I want you to think right now. I want you to think about the issues going through your lives right now. I don't know what all of them are, but what I do know is that some of you are dealing with chaos in your lives. Some of you have pressure and fear and anxiety. Some of you have confusion about what you're supposed to do in a particular situation. Some of you have incredible pain and loneliness and temptation in your lives. And sometimes in those moments, we are tempted to think, where is God in all this? I don't see God. I don't feel God. I don't sense that God is anywhere involved in this situation. And yet be very careful about that. Because just because you cannot see him, doesn't mean he isn't there. Because remember, the sovereignty of God oftentimes doesn't feel like we think it should feel. Again, remember, it oftentimes doesn't feel like anything. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. See, Daniel 1 exists in our Bibles to give you a new pair of theological eyeballs to help you interpret life not based on your feelings, but on your theology. Because the theology of the Bible says no matter what you feel, no matter what you see, no matter what you sense with your intuition, no matter what it looks like in the moment, God is there in the totality of his being. And in Christ, he is for you. In Christ, God is for you. What does that mean? That means Jesus bought that for you. Christ purchased with his blood the favor of God on your behalf so that you know that no matter what is happening in your life, God is powerfully and irreversibly for you. God forbid that Romans 8 would ever become cliche in our lives. It's in your notes. Look what it says. And we know and we know that God works all things for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You can take that to the bank. 
I mean, you almost want to applaud and clap for, for something. Well, that, that's, that's incredible, and it is applause-worthy. You can take that to the bank because God is irreversibly and powerfully for you in Christ. And yet, be that as it may, the sovereignty of God oftentimes doesn't move things always in the way we imagined, right? In the way we expected, because in verse 10, get this, the man refuses Daniel's request. He says, no, kind of. You may think, well, wait, I, I, thought that, I thought the text said that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of this pagan official. No, no, that's true. He really did. And yet look at the man's response in verse 10. He says, I am afraid of the king who appointed your food and your drink. Why then shall he see your faces looking more haggard, literally it's haggard in the, in the Hebrew, than all the other youths who are according to your same age and you shall forfeit my head to the king. Shows what kind of man Nebuchadnezzar is and he knew it. You see, what, what we find out in verse 12 is that Daniel had offered an alternative menu to the king's menu. What we find out is that Daniel um, proposed that instead of the king's food, that he and his comrades eat only vegetables and water. Think of it, an all-vegetarian diet, Carlos Swanson's dream. And the, the guy's reply is, the guy's reply is, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? I say, let me tell you how this is going to go down. Speaking for the guy, in colloquial terms. Here you are, you're eating your, your celery and your carrot sticks, and here's all the other recruits eating their high-calorie, high-protein diet, looking like professional athletes, while you look like slaves in a prison camp. And the king's going to take one look at you, and he's going to know I didn't do my job. And if that happens, I'll not only lose my job, I'll lose my head also. Pass. No thank you. So, in a sense, his answer kind of sort of, is no. And the reason why I say in a sense, kind of, and sort of, is because, get this, if you look very carefully, his answer is not actually a direct refusal. It's not. I, I, you see, you can't hear tone in the text, but I think the context gives the indication that maybe, maybe he is holding out the possibility that although he can't grant the request, maybe something could be done. I think he's saying, look, I personally can't do this for you, but maybe there's something that can be done. Why do I say that? Because notice verse 11. Notice what happens. Daniel goes to the warden, the guy underneath this official. He goes underneath him, and, and he presents the exact same request. So I think the issue is, maybe a little behind the scenes here, I think the chief of the officials is like, look, I'm not willing to get my head cut off, but maybe I'll be willing to sacrifice the guy below me. I'll sacrifice his head, so, you know, don't ask, don't tell, I won't look, you know, uh, you, you just do your thing and I'll turn the other cheek. I think that's, or turn, not the other cheek, turn the, turn the other way. Uh, mixing analogies here. But, but notice verses 11 and 12. Here's Daniel's proposal. Test your servants for 10 days. And let them give to us from the vegetables, and we shall eat, and water, and we shall drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who ate the fine cuisine of the king, let that appear before you, and do with your servants as you see fit. You see the proposal he makes here? He offers him a no-risk, no-loss, 10-day trial where Daniel and his comrades get only salads and water 
while everyone else gets filet mignon and garlic mashed potatoes and caramel apple pie. I always pick, pick the same like three foods every time I use a food analogy. And after 10 days, get this, after 10 days, if they don't look healthier and stronger and more well-built than the other guys who ate the food of the king, the high-calorie food of the king, end of verse 13, do with your servants as you see fit. Now, maybe you're thinking what I was thinking when I was looking at this, like, well, wait, aren't vegetables and water better for you anyway? I mean, this isn't really much of a test. They're gonna, aren't they going to look better anyway? But you see, that's the issue. Uh, uh, health wasn't the issue. Appearance was the issue. You see, the diet from the king was specifically designed to produce a certain kind of physique, one that would make the men look strong and thick and brawny, something that eating only salads can never produce. So in those days, what kings wanted in their courts are strong, beefy men that looked like NFL quarterbacks, not people like me or Mr. Bean. Okay, that's, that's what they're, they're after here. So the, the point is, the point is, you, you see this, right? Yahweh is going to have to come through here. You see that, right? He's going to have to come through here. He, he is going to have to metabolically intervene and change the molecular structure of a lettuce to produce the kind of appearance and physique equal to that of eating the cuisine of the king. In other words, there's two ways this can go. God supernaturally delivers or they die. And either way, God is glorified. Either by his deliverance or by their standing upon the word of God. And in verse 14, without recording a single word in response, it says that the man listened to them concerning this matter and he tested them for 10 days. He listened. He agreed. He, he, he catered to Daniel's wish not to eat the food. And you tell me, you tell me, why did he listen to Daniel? Why, why did he cater to the request? Well, what theology in the text explains why he was willing to grant what Daniel had asked? I'll tell you why. Because this moment right here was divine intervention. The man listened to Daniel and his comrades, not because he was passionate about vegan diets or because he thought this was a good idea, but because God is absolutely sovereign. This moment right here, this conversation right here, undetectable to the senses, God was at work behind the scenes, steering this man's thoughts and feelings and opinions to grant Daniel his request. I'm not saying that's easy to understand. I'm just saying that is the implication of the text. Jared, how do you know that? Because verse 9 already told us God gave favor and compassion. And thus he brought about a scenario that otherwise never would have happened had he not intervened. And so I think the application to your lives is you, you not only have permission, you have the responsibility to ask God to intervene in your lives in the exact same way. I think you have, I think you have the responsibility to ask God to intervene. Think about it, the conversation that you really got to have that you really don't want to have because it might blow up in your face, ask God to intervene. The gospel conversation that you're kind of scared to have and you don't really want to have, but you know you should have and you know it's what's good for their eternal souls and, and, and yet, yet, yet you're not really sure, you're, you're afraid, ask God to intervene. 
a particular temptation in your lives that you know is coming and you know, you know that you do not have it within you to resist, what should you do? Ask God beforehand to intervene. Ask him to intervene in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. Well, verse 15, 10 days, 30 salads later, we get the test results. And it's official, Daniel and his friends tested positive for sovereign grace. See, God stepped in and he did the nutritionally impossible. (laughs) He overruled the metabolic qualities and molecular structure of the vegetables and caused them to have an effect on their bodies that otherwise that could not have done and, 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 and produced effects on the human body that they otherwise could not have produced. And, and maybe you're thinking, that's interesting, but why is this here? I mean, why is this in the Bible? Why is this the opening chapter of Daniel? To teach us what? To lecture us on the evils of eating meat? No, thankfully. What else? To, to inspire us with the heartwarming tale of four teenagers who stayed pure in a filthy culture? That's true, but that's not the point of the text. Okay, wise guy, what is the point of the text? The point of the text is this. Listen very carefully. There is a God in Babylon. That's the point. There is a God in Babylon. On Babylonian turf, God is displaying that no matter where you are, what the situation is, how bad things look from your perspective, God always, always has home field advantage in Babylon. In American culture, in public schools, in the halls of Congress, God always wins. The point is God is supreme and there is no one like him. Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he darn well pleases. That is the point. So the application then, there is an application of that principle to your lives and the application is obvious and undeniable. The point is that you must learn to trust. Not your instincts, but your theology. You must learn to trust your theology. The theology that says that despite what you see with your eyes and what you feel with your hearts and what what you sense with your intuition, God is with you, active and moving and leading and guiding and governing and ruling the universe with absolute ease. That is the take home. You can take that to the bank. Which brings us finally to the triumphant sovereignty. The triumphant sovereignty of verses 17 through 21. And you know, to our shame, we tend to put Daniel and his comrades on a bit of a pedestal, don't we? And years of, of flannel graph presentations to kids seals into their memories that, that these, these boys are heroic and incredible. And, and I'm not saying they weren't godly and didn't have some natural giftedness, but I think it misses the point of the text. You see, I believe that the text alerts us, the clues in the text alerts us to the fact that these Jewish teenagers, although attractive and smart, 
were not necessarily anything special in and of themselves. Why? Because again, again, what we see is that they are the grateful recipients of the undeserved favor of God. Look at verse 17. And these four youths, God gave to them. Does that sound familiar? And these four youths, God gave to them learning and insight in all writing and wisdom. And Daniel understood every vision and dreams. And there it is again for the third time in the chapter, the most important phrase in the whole chapter, God gave. God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Babylon. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And here God saw fit to give to these four Hebrew youths in particular exceptional knowledge and insight and wisdom. In other words, what they were was the top of their class. And again, I'm not saying they didn't work hard. And again, I'm not saying they didn't have any natural ability. I'm not saying they were just, you know, a bunch of jocks and they didn't, they didn't have any clue what was going on. I mean, I mean there were, they, they were some sharp guys, otherwise they would not be recruited. And yet what the text says, what the text wants you to see is that God is in control of the pixels and the details and the genetic, hidden genetic code of our lives. God rules it all. You see, God was at work in Babylon, putting his glory on display. And then notice in verse 18, at the blink of an eye, Daniel takes us to graduation day. Cap and gown and, and diploma in hand, the king orders all the grads to appear in his court so that he can interview them and again to find the best of the best and to employ him in the service of his kingdom. And watch what happens in verses 19 and 20. Look at the text. And the king spoke with them. And there was not found from all of them anyone like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And they stood before the king. And as for every word of wisdom of understanding which the king sought from them, from them he found them ten times better than all of the conjurers and sorcerers who were in all of his kingdom. That doesn't mean they practiced those things. It just means that they had more insight than all of them. Again, these four men were absolutely brilliant. Summa cum laude, top of their class. And why were they? Because verse 17 already said, God gave. God supernaturally implanted within them supreme intelligence and insight and brilliance way beyond their capabilities. Why? Because God was making a name for himself. God was making a name for himself unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar and the entirety of the kingdom. God was putting himself on display. And whether or not Nebuchadnezzar got the message, and he probably didn't, very soon he was about to. See, you need to see this. The God of Daniel is a sovereign God. And speaking of the sovereignty of God, that brings us to four, four realities about the sovereignty of God that produce joy and stability in your lives as you wait for the Messiah to establish his kingdom. This is going to go really fast. Four realities of the sovereignty of God, number one. Number one, the sovereignty of God 
is a comprehensive sovereignty. It is a comprehensive sovereignty. What I mean is God's power is the active force, not just behind the big picture ticket items in the world, but rather God's sovereignty extends even to the details every single moment of every event in history. Every bird on a branch in the Amazon jungle, every roll of the dice in Las Vegas, every hair on your head, the nails in the sun's hand have all been ordained and governed by God. Number two, the sovereignty of God is a silent sovereignty. It is a silent sovereignty, silent Invisible, undetectable to the human eye, though it may be, nevertheless, there God is behind the scenes, pulling the strings, working everything out in your lives, always and only for the glory of his son. Number three, the sovereignty of God is a humble sovereignty. It is a humble sovereignty. Sovereignty, meaning God ordains what even seem to be setbacks to his own plan. <laughs> he seems to orchestrate events that seem to paint him into a corner. Why does he do that? So that when he wins in the end, his victory will be all the more glorious. Like the crucifixion of his son, for instance. I mean, you think about the rulers of Christ's day and all that they did to try to to, to get Christ killed. And yet with all their scheming and all their planning to put an end to Christ, they did not know that the whole time they were playing right into the hands of the living God. Number four, the sovereignty of God is an active sovereignty. It is an active sovereignty. Active as opposed to passive. Proactive as opposed to reactive. You see, it's not merely enough to say that God allows things to happen. It's not enough to say that God merely permits things to happen. We think that solves our theological dilemmas, but it does not. Rather, God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God actively hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God actively ordained that Judas would betray Christ. And according to Acts chapter 4, everything that happened to Jesus Christ to get him killed happened not merely because God allowed it, but because it was God's design to bring salvation to the world. And if you are not reconciled to Jesus Christ here this morning, if you do not have the salvation that he purchased and paid for with his blood, I urge, I plead, I beg of you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I'm asking you, just because you made a profession of faith, if that's your story, that, that I want you to consider, do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Have you yielded to the king? I'm asking you to lay down your weapons of rebellion and to wave the white flag of surrender and to give yourself to the satisfying custody of Jesus Christ and to yield to the King. Because the grass is greener on the other side with Jesus. Salvation, satisfaction, the kingdom is yours. If you don't know Christ, it's time to be reconciled to the King. I close with this. we might not be able to see God's control. We not, might not be able to sense 
God's control or explain God's control, but that doesn't mean it isn't there because it is there. God's always there in the totality of his being, ruling and reigning and loving and leading and governing and guiding. And there's nothing more joyful, joyful and stable than that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, is it a remarkable thing that you condescended as a man to walk on this earth and not just that you would in incarcerate yourself in human flesh, but that you would die in the place of people like us. Well, what a, what a grand entrance for God in, in human history. And so we are so thrilled by that, oh Christ, I pray, I pray that you would help us to trust you. You would help us to have a new pair of theological eyeballs that, that see the world the way it, it really is, namely as the uninterrupted domain of your activity. Oh Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust our theology, not our instincts, not our feelings, but to trust our theology. Help us to be a people who offer real, legitimate, bona fide hope to a culture filled with lost people. Oh, strengthen us. Strengthen us for your global cause, O King. Make us effective instruments in your hands and may we, may we bring, may we be those who bring a message of peace and hope and joy and salvation to a people trapped in darkness. O Lord, help us. Strengthen us with the complete and perfect sovereignty of God over all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.